When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Bleeding Blue, a show about the New York football giants and its history. My name is Justin Panic. You're going to see snacks next week because this week we interviewed the author of the book that we have been talking about for the last month, The Big 50, The Men and the Moments That Made the New York Giants. We talked with Patricia Traney. She was nice enough to give about a half an hour of her time. And we talked about her book, talked about some of her favorite moments, most challenging moments, uh, writing an awesome, awesome book, and I really do recommend, again, uh, it's been a lot of fun this past month reading this book. We couldn't even get to half of the the moments and the the men and the things that she wrote about, you know, the great history that this uh, franchise has to offer. So I really recommend, check out The Big 50. You get it. You read it over the summer. If you're, if you're going on a summer vacay, it's a perfect book for that. So, without further ado, we're going to throw it to Patricia Trania. All right, welcome back to the show, and now we want to welcome on, you know her as a writer and a reporter on Giants Country. You also know her for her podcast, the Locked On Giants podcast, but most importantly right now, the author of The Big 50, The Men and the Moments That Made the New York Giants, Patricia Trania. Welcome on to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Always great to be on with you, and I appreciate you having me on. No, thank you. Um, this has been a really, really fun, fun book to read. And I'm basically going to repeat the same thing that I did to you before we started the show. I feel like if you're a Giants fan who's relatively younger, who wants to get into the Giants to get to know the history of this franchise and get to know so many moments, not just one specific player, not just one specific moment or one specific generation. If you kind of want to know the good history and the great history that this franchise has kind of like in a bubble, these 50 moments and these 50 men that you kind of describe, I mean, it's it's it. And this is really a book where I would give to starters um, and then also people that want a refresher on the the good old days, the glory days, or even just our, the recent glory days, too. I would tell them to pick up this book, and it's been really fun for like the past month going through some of these chapters. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. It was a fun project to work on. It was a challenging one because, you know, the Giants, they've been around for almost 100 years now. Mm. So to go back and pick 50 men, 50 moments. And, you know, there were going to be some guys that got left out. And, you know, I tried every way possible to mention as many as I could, even if they were like kind of, you know, part of a, a, a bigger chapter, so to speak. And it's interesting. I read some of the reviews and somebody said, oh, my God, you didn't cover Mark Bavaro. Well, I think I touched on Mark Bavaro a little bit in some of the other chapters. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's just when you're limited to 50 
and you're, you know, you're given direction, which I was kind of given direction uh, from the editors, because this is part of a series, actually, the, the publisher, um, Triumph Books has a series called the Big 50. Mm. And they have books out on the Rangers, I think they have a book out on the Yankees. Now, I think a book was was coming out on the Mets. I'm not sure, but they do um, a series of all the teams, you know, major league baseball, NFL. So there's kind of a, a, a template, but, you know, each author has their own, um, you know, autonomy to, as to what they include, how they, they set it up and so on. So what was your favorite chapter, favorite moment, you know, for your favorite thing to write about throughout this entire book? Well, anything that I lived through, obviously, because, you know, I have some fond memories, obviously, of stuff I lived through. I, and I tell people all the time, my career highlight, my favorite moment cover, covering the Giants, and I've been covering the Giants now for over 30 years, was Super Bowl two, the, the Super Bowl in 2007. Mm. I mean, that matter of fact, that whole playoff month was just magic. It was the most fun I've ever had. I mean, it was a lot of work. You know, we were, tra- I was traveling every weekend. So it's like, and, and during the winter, no less. And that was the weekend, obviously, you know, or the month, I should say, when we had that Green Bay game where everybody froze their toenails off. Um, but it was so much fun, Justin. And then to get down to Phoenix um, for the Super Bowl and go through that was just, I, I, I don't know how to put it into words. It was my favorite, favorite moment. It's something I'll never forget. And I still talk about it to this day with, you know, colleagues who who covered it back then with me. We talk about our travel adventures. We have a lot, a lot of little cute behind the scenes stuff, which I think people would find funny. But it was just so great. And what was also cool about it is that that year I felt like the media and the players kind of bonded as strongly mm. as I've ever seen it. If that makes sense. I mean, not that it's, you know, the players versus the media. I don't want you to get that impression, but it just seemed like everybody bonded as a family. And we were like, instead of being the ugly cousins, we were like part of the family, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it was just it, it, that by far, I think was my favorite chapter. I feel like winning will do that too. Sure. <laughs> nobody, sure, nobody wants a microphone stuck in their face when you're, when you're losing. And even yeah. though the giants weren't, they weren't losing per se, especially when you compare it to now during the early Coughlin days, but there was still a lot of adversity. There was a lot of personalities you actually titled the chapter, and we were on air, and I literally got confused over this. You titled the chapter the 18-year championship drought, and we were on air bleeding blue, and I was like, what, what chapter is this? Because everybody talks about the championship drought you know, between when they won the championships and then the Super Bowls. Like, you don't really hear the 18-year drought between the 91 Super Bowl and then the 2007 Super Bowl. And Snacks was like, are you an idiot? It's the, it's the it's the drought that they had before 2007. I'm like, oh, that didn't really register in my brain that there was that long of a drought. So to hear that was, uh, you know, the, the most enjoyable for you to write than also live through and cover, it's, it's really, really cool. Because I guarantee a lot of people agree with you as a fan. That was probably the most enjoyable Super Bowl as well. Well, also a lot of people were alive. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> back then. Yes. Um, you know, maybe some of the people today are were, were, you know, younger children or whatnot, but you know, a lot of people were alive when that happened, you know, yeah. to, to, you know, uh, whereas opposed to if I read about, you know, if I talk about the 86 Super Bowl, I was alive for that. But I think a lot of people, maybe a lot of my audience, especially those who are, you know, into YouTube and whatnot, maybe they are they were a little younger or something I'm, you know i have a, a mixture of age ranges for my audience but i find when i talk about the days of lawrence taylor and phil sims and people are like they know the names but they didn't see them play right, and i'm right, like right. boy you really missed out yeah do you do you get the sense that 
the 07 Super Bowl. Now, it is recency biased because, like I said, a lot of a lot of our audience, uh, it, it, I was and I was alive for that as well. I was young, but I was I was alive for it. But do you get the sense that the 07 Super Bowl has more magic to it just because there's more eyes on the Giants, there's more eyes on the game of football compared to Super Bowl 21 and that 86 87 team, even though that was the first team to actually win a Super Bowl. Like what in your opinion, especially from writing the big 50, what team maybe had a little bit more magic with them? Mm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say the 90 team. Okay. The oh, one that's, oh, even the, the one 90. Super Bowl, okay. Yeah. The one that was the one Super Bowl 25. I think those, I mean, that team, a lot of, the, nobody expected anything out of that team. You know, that was the year they lost Phil Sims, mm. you know, midway through the season, or I think three quarters of the way through the season. Um, they were going to face the Buffalo Bills in that Super Bowl. And the Bills at the time were just, they were dynamic. Jim Kelly, that K-Gun offense, and Bill Belichick, and how he shut that team down was just brilliant. And then, you know, from the offensive perspective, to have, you know, to run the ball with Otis Anderson, who who was the uh, MVP of that Super Bowl. So that team, I, I don't think that a lot of people expected that team to go as far as they did. As a matter of fact, I remember, I and this was pretty kind of, you know, I remember talking to Mark Collins about this. I said, was, I said, there was a story. I said, tell me if this is true or not. But there was a story that the 49ers were so confident they were going to go to the Super Bowl that they had already booked their piano player to play in the lobby of the hotel. And they had booked a bunch of, you know, mm. um, vendors that they normally use because they were so confident they were going. And now it's like, oh, the Giants just ruined it. So we've got to cancel all that <laughs> stuff. And that was a true story. They they had booked certain people to go down and because they were they were looking past the Giants, kind of like, you know, in, in 2007, when the Cowboys mm -hmm. were handing out tickets to the championship game. You know, looking past the Giants in the divisional round. I was going to say, when are teams going to learn to not do that? Yeah, really. <laughs> when are they going to learn? Um, so you mentioned Bill Belichick in that in that game plan, and one and one of the th one of the things that I kind of phrased with reading in the Big Fifty, uh, watching America's game of those of those uh, two Super Bowl winning teams. I thought 86-87, that's LT's 20-and-a-half sack season. I thought 86-87 was a lot more of a talented team versus mm -hmm. 90 and 91. You got to see the brilliance of especially Bill Belichick and the coaching. You got to see the brilliance of what good coaching can do in 90-91, and that's how those two teams differed. And something that we talked a lot about when it came to Bill Belichick, we, we, we put in an episode – Tom Landry, Vince Lombardi, Bill Belichick, like the great assistant coaches that the Giants had. And that's yeah. and that was an episode that we did. And we're going back and forth on kind of what happened with Bill Belichick after the 1990-91 season. Bill Parcells, I think in the month of May, mm -hmm. says that he's going to retire. He's going to get the bypass surgery. Now, that is very, very late to be looking for a new head coach, but in your opinion, do you think it if it came down to it and Bill Belichick was still available at that time, do you think he would have been the Giants head coach or was Wellington Mara George Young going to nip that in the butt because they didn't feel like he was a fit for New York? I think George Young might not have felt that Belichick would be a fit. You know, I don't have to tell you that um, you have to have a certain disposition and a certain personality to be a head coach in New York, whether, mm. regardless of the sport. Because it is a big media market. It is a very critical media market. People can turn on you on a dime. They will love you when you win. And they will hate your guts when you don't win. Um, and Belichick 
you know, brilliant coach. I mean, he has proven it hands down, but I don't get the sense that, that the organization at the time felt that he would be a fit, which is why they kind of, you know, didn't stop him from going to Cleveland. I think he went to Cleveland, became the head coach there. And unfortunately didn't do very well out in Cleveland. Um, I just, I I always remember, you know, he went out there and he brought out some of his old guys out there, Mm -hmm. didn't do well. And he, and it, then he came back. I think he was an assistant with the Jets, if I'm not mistaken. Didn't last long when he got promoted. You know, I think he got promoted to head coach and then he resigned, put his resignation on a napkin. And then, you know, eventually he ended up in New England where, you know, he, he carved out a Hall of Fame career. Yeah. So, you know, the, the New York market is not for everybody. It does take a certain type of personality. And I, you know, I, I just get the impression based on the research I did that the Giants you know, not necessarily ownership because look, they love Bill Belichick. They still do, but there were other people who felt that maybe he wouldn't be the right fit for the team at the time. And, you know, personality is one thing. My, my, my criteria would have been, can the guy coach? Yeah. And he showed he could coach, you know, the defense, he was loved by his players. So I just, you know, that's the impression I got now. I, People will disagree. I'm sure yeah. his players will disagree, but you know that's kind of what I was led down to believe. That I want to shift gears. I want to shift gears a little bit. You mentioned how there were some chapters and there were some moments that were tough to write. So yeah. what are what were some of those toughest moments? Maybe you had to do a lot of research, something that you weren't familiar with. Give give me something. I mean, anything really before my before I was born. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was born in 1968. So anything, you know, where I had to go back where maybe the records were a little sketchy or I had to, you know, piece stuff together. Fortunately, I had a, a really good resource. The Giants were wonderful with opening up their archives to me. Yeah. Um, they allowed me to go into their um, what do they call it? The state, not the stadium club, um, the legacy club. Mm. And I got a, basically I went in with the, the curator of who, who's a member of the team's um, front office and we looked through a lot of artifacts um i was allowed to photograph them i was allowed to you know examine them and i was able to fill in some of the gaps you know they had news clips they had old media guides they Mm. had old scouting reports all kinds of treasures you know not you know it wasn't organized all wasn't all organized but i was able to find what i needed to but still just to go back and find you know the little pieces I would have liked to have seen, for example, some more of the film, which I know it's very hard to find some of that film. Um, so I did the best I could. And, you know, the information's only as good as what you were able to uncover. And I know that. But, uh, you know, I, I tried to be as thorough as I could. Though. So those were all difficult chapters. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. You know, when I was writing this book, my father, who basically turned me on to the Giants when I was a little girl, he was going through some health issues that he ultimately died from. Hmm. And he passed away before um, the book. He passed away in September of 2019. The book came out the following year. So I hadn't really um, started the book. I, I had an outline, but I hadn't really started it. So to have to write that book, knowing that he wasn't around and wouldn't see it, that was very d- yeah. tough because that's something he and I shared. And right at the start of the book, I'm putting it right in front of my face to my dad, Al, for introducing me mm-hmm. to Giants football. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And it's funny because you, when my mom died in, in December, I put a copy of the book 
in her coffin. And I said, mm. take this to daddy. Make sure daddy reads it. Oh, that's, that's nice. And really, it, it, family's football. Right. Yeah. You know, or for yeah. football, football is family, um, mm-hmm. I, I guess I should say. And, yeah. and really your, you know, your connection to the Giants and your connection to football, it, it really absorbs uh, all, all throughout this book. What chapter surprised you the most? Like you're going through stories like, oh, I was not expecting this moment to be like this, this, you know, the, the, this man to you know, kind of be be the way that he was. So what chapter surprised you the most? I think when I wrote about and I'm just looking real quick because I want to make sure I give you the, the right name. Like, I didn't know about the game that put the NFL on the map. That was one that I learned about. Yeah, we talked about um, that, yeah. Yeah, but I think the one that, dis- that that surprised me the most was the Unsung Heroes of Super Bowl um, 46. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because Super Bowl 46, that year I was just coming through cancer. I'd, I'd been diagnosed with cancer that year, and I completed my chemo and radiation and you know, that was a, a great year for giant fans, but I, I tell people, I don't remember a whole lot from that year. I had to go yeah. back and kind of look at my notes and stuff like that, because, you know, ke- look, chemo knocks the heck out of you. Let's, yeah. let's be frank. So when I was putting that chapter together, I said, my gosh, you know, first time I wrote it, I, I said, it's almost like a replica of 2007. And I, I didn't want to repeat what I did for 2007 for the first Super Bowl of the Eli Manning, Tom Coughlin era. So I went and I did some more research and I came up with the unsung hero angle. And when I went and I studied that, I said, oh, wow, this is a story that I don't think a lot of people have heard, you know, Chase Blackburn, Mario Manningham, you know, I I talked about the the unsung heroes Mm -hmm. and that helped them get to where they were. And that was just, you know, I people have told me that that was a pretty good angle to take because they didn't realize that those were the guys that you know, were, were very instrumental, but yet under the radar. I'm actually going to read you something that came from the brilliance of Bill Belichick chapter. And I immediately thought of Mario Manningham. And I believe Carl Banks said this. The game plans he, he put together were for the 90th percentile of players. And if that one player found himself in an unfortunate situation, he'd say, look, we can protect everything but this play. If this happens, then they caught us off guard. But this, as much as yardage as they should make on a play like this. So basically, like I, I, I read that. And I think back to the sound effects from Super Bowl 46, where Bill Belichick is like, Make this him is go a, to Marion. This is a Cruz and Knicks game. Let them go to Manningham and mm-hmm. Ballard. And then lo and behold, it's exactly yeah. it's exactly what the Giants did. And that's why that team in 2011 was so great, too, that they had all yeah. those guys that could contribute yeah. like that. Absolutely. And, you know, credit to Eli Manning and to, to the coaches because they had confidence in those guys. You know, even if you go back to 2007, you know, I, I think you've heard the story before that David Tyree, who ended up being a Super Bowl mm-hmm. hero in that one, couldn't catch a cold that whole yep. week. He was horrible in practice. He couldn't catch a darn thing. And Coughlin was getting nervous. And Eli just said, you know what, David, take a deep breath. I, I know you got this. And Eli, that's the kind of calming effect he had on the guys around him. And, you know, not to kind of bring the present into the into the discussion, but this is a people ask me all the time, what does Daniel Jones have to show? Mm. That's a quality Daniel Jones needs to show to be able to, to, to you know, bring that talent around him and, ri- you know, help it rise. And that's something that, that I know we, we should be looking for, you yeah. know, amongst other stuff. So Eli was just really good at that. And just look at all the guys after they left the Giants and they went and played for other teams. How many of the receivers really had 
the success they had with other teams that they had with the Giants. One of those wide receivers includes Odell Beckham Jr. Mm-hmm. And he was a chapter in this book. Yes, so <laughs> I'm going to ask you kind of a I'm going to ask you kind of a funny question because I, I can easily see this. How many people were mad at you that you, added, that you put an Odell Beckham Jr. chapter in, but you didn't put like a Mark Bavaro chapter in or something like that? It I was, could easily I, I, see. I could easily see that happening. <laughs> I got a few complaints about that. But, you know, listen, Mark Bavaro, I love the guy. I absolutely love him. You know, my my mentor um, was he and Mark Bavaro got along beautifully. Mm-hmm. And I have a great deal of respect for Mark Bavaro. I mean, I, I his book, he, he wrote a, a novel, actually, which was pretty good. Um, a little too close to real life, but it was pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, Odell, again, it, it, it came down to, they the, the guideline was try to put as much post-1970, post-1980 stuff, you know, try to be current because okay. we had to remember the audience we were targeting and the book is suitable for all ages. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of people aren't going to know about the greatest game ever played. I mean, they might know about it, but they might not have been alive to see it. They might not remember Sam Huff. They might not remember Frank Gifford, you know, they've heard of them, but seeing them is different. So, you know, Odell was such a lightning rod and such high expectations. Mark Bavaro, um, he was a solid, solid player. I don't believe nothing to he, the superstar. Yeah, you know that when it came Odell down to was. that. And plus, Odell was just a sexier name. And yeah, and you know when I was going through the chapters, I did have a chapter initially on Bavaro. Um, I had an outline for it, and when we were going through the chapters, my my editor and I, they felt that Odell was the uh, more attractive chapter. So, <laughs> no, I and I I. I didn't ask that as like a as like a slight. I asked it oh, as no, no, I you know, know. we are. You know, I think we're. I think we're starting to approach it now as we're realizing that we now that Odell's kind of he got a Super Bowl. He's been hurt. He's continued to get hurt. It's not like he found the most huge big time success that he found here in New York. So I think now we're getting to a point where fans can start to appreciate. Be like, yeah, you know, the way that he left was it not awesome? It was not awesome. Yeah. But just when he was here. It was absolutely, absolutely uh, electric. So I'm, I'm glad that we're finally getting to that point as fans. And I'm glad that even when it was very controversial during the, you know, during 2020 and then before that, as you're doing research, even though it's very controversial, it was very controversial to include Odell in there. I'm glad that you did because we are yeah. going to look back fondly on you that. You know, so. it's 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 funny. A lot of people I can remember back in the, the when Odell was on the team, a lot of people thought I hated him. And that was not the case. I, I, I like Odell. Mm-hmm. Odell, I always I thought he was immature when he was here. Um, and, and it's funny, but he and I used to have some really good conversations about life. It's so mm. funny. But yet, I'll, t- I'll let you in on a little secret. He is the only player that has ever blocked me on Twitter. And I don't think he did it. I, I think somebody's team. Yeah, I think somebody on his team did it because, you know, people would tag me when I would 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 say, you know, oh, Odell's got to stop with this silliness, you know, and, and and people would tag me and tag him and somebody from his team. But Odell and I got along beautifully. I mean, yeah. I can remember one time we were sitting, you know, I was I, I was in the locker room and I sat down for a second. I forget why. I think my knee was bothering me or something. And he came up and he sat down next to me and he said to me, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. What's up? And he started asking me about love and life. And I was like, 
okay, I didn't expect that to come. So we were having this whole conversation about, um, you know, how do I know if I find somebody who's going to love me for me? How, how will I know? And where, where's a good place? You know, how, how can I find love? You know, where's, we were talking about love and life. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh my, first off, I was like, oh my God, now I know I'm old because if I, if they're coming to me to ask me about that, that's when you know you've crossed the bridge from, you know, being in the twenties to, to being in your fifties. But we had a, such a sweet conversation. Then I remember um, later that season, I was walking away from, from a group. I think Saquon was, was there at the time. And I was walking away from a group and there was lit, there was stuff all over the locker room floor. And I almost tripped and Odell, I didn't realize this, but Odell was like right behind me and he quick grabbed my arm and he made sure he helped me out of the locker room because it was time for us to go. He made sure that I got out of the locker room safe without tripping over anything, which I thought was really sweet. So we had, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we had a really sweet relationship. Have you talked with uh, love, love and life, and the key to happiness with any other player that you? That you've I have covered? not. I have. I've had some interesting, off-topic conversations, but not, not that one now. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things that we also talked about in the Big Fifty. What? So what we did, snacks and I, we we stuck very much, and this has been the theme of the off season. We have stuck with the pre 2007, 2011 Super Bowl team. And then even going even before the 2000, you know, NFC championship team, we've really tried to hone down on the eighties, the nineties, and even poking our, our, our feet in the water of uh, the, those championship teams as well. And one of the things that we really talked about in the, in the big 50 specifically is Tim Mara and Wellington Mara and how Tim Mara made some very risky financial decisions and was losing money for long periods of time on the Giants, but had this long-term outlook on the franchise's success, and it wound up working. Wellington Mara had some opportunities to make some money for the Giants, specifically with some TV deals, Um, and I think this is the main reason why the NFL is king over other sports, is that you look now, there is an equitable split amongst those TV deals versus Major League Baseball, even though the national TV deals, every team gets the same. You have the local networks that, you know, there's so much more revenue for teams like the Dodgers, the Mets, the Yankees, et cetera. But, t- but Wellington Mara was like, no, every team should get the same. That even though I'm in a New York market, every team should get the same from those TV deals. So long story short, the Maras set the precedent of we're going to do what's right for the Giants, even if it doesn't, even if it hurts us in our pockets or even if it just hurts us in the long haul. We're going to do what's right for the Giants. We're going to do what's right for the game. You've been a you know fan and you've been covering the team for for thirty years. Just talk to me about the Mara's way of just going about their business. That is kind of you know us and we over I. Yeah, let me just say this. I mean, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't get to know Wellington Mara as, as well as I would have liked to have. Now, everything I heard about him, everything I knew about him, he was a true throwback. I mean, he, it was always what's in the best interest of others as opposed to, you know, how am I going to benefit? Well, you know, in today's world, there aren't very many people like that. It's, mm. a, it's a me, me, me type of world. And that helped, you know, the sacrifices that he made really helped the NFL become what it is today, as you pointed out. And, you know, it's something he passed on to John. You know, the other thing that I, you know, a lot of people, I don't, I don't know if they know this or not, but if you wrote a letter to Wellington Mara, 
whether it was filled with cuss words or, or praise, he always wrote back to his customers because he felt that if you cared enough to send him a letter, he was going to respond. Kind of a, a philosophy I've adopted too. But John, to this day, does the same thing because his father taught him that. Now, John and his father are two very different people, um, but they both try to have the best interest of the team in mind. I, I know sometimes it doesn't look that way. And I know, you know, there are questions given some of the decisions that have been made, but yeah, it's, it's look, if, if the league benefits, they're going to benefit. All right. So the league has now expanded overseas. Um, they're looking to get into the, um, the market in Africa. Um, that's going to boost the revenue. Yeah. And all those teams are going to benefit from it. So a little sacrifice then has paid off now. Yeah. And that's been, you know, I admire the game of football from the sense of that it is just, it's king. And the NFL can kind of do no wrong, even when it does wrong. And even when sometimes players slip up and maybe the commissioner's office should do some different things. It's the the game can do no wrong because you're going to have, you know, game seven, game six of the finals. I guarantee if you look at the ratings from game six of the finals where it was Warriors Celtics, there's going to be some Thursday night football games that are going to beat out sure. <laughs> game six of the finals. And it's just it's crazy that the NFL cannot fail. And, you know, reading especially what you wrote about in the Big 50, you know, Wellington Mara, specifically Wellington Mara, you know, the strides that he made for the benefit of the game in the long haul. You know, it could have benefited the Giants and making the Giants more money, helping the Giants win more games and making it more of a desirable place to come. But he didn't do that. And right. that and, is why the game of football is king. And, you know, when when he passed, I remember, you know, we, we all went to his his funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And that was like the first time I think I have seen media and former well, former players, you would, you would kind of expect but the media. Mm. Every media member that covered that team went and that church was packed. I mean, it was standing room only. And it was, a. I, I remember most of the ceremony, you know, the, most of the funeral, it was very beautiful. It was very touching. I could just picture Wellington Mara going, gosh, what's all this fuss about? It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. please. Cause that's how he was. He was very modest, very humble, um, he never wanted it to be about him and just the tributes and, and the love that was there and the emotion, my gosh, it was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I'm not a big, obviously, I don't think it, very many people are a big fan of going to funerals because, you know, yeah. what they signify, but I, I walked out of there. I remember I walked out of St. Patrick's Cathedral and I was like, wow, I was like blown away by the whole, you know, experience and just, you know, you, you, you if you didn't shed a tear that day, then, then mm. you don't have a heart. Yeah, absolutely. Patty, um, I want to I want to thank you for coming on again. It was a joy this past month to to read certain parts of this book. We we couldn't get through all of it. We we, we really couldn't get through all of it. But at the same time, uh, if I really wanted to, and I think if anybody really wants to, like you can, you can bang out this book in, a, in a, just a span of a couple days. Um, it is, it is that good. It is very quick hitting, but it also is really chocked full of history. Um, so I can't thank you enough for coming on. I can't thank you enough for writing this. And uh, any, any last words? Yeah, I just want to thank you first of all for picking it to to discuss and you know read from it and discuss it. I, I appreciate it. I want to thank everybody 
who has picked up a copy of the book. Um, I know some people have asked about, you know, can I get it signed? And I'm like, you know, it's probably easier if you just reach out to me and I can send you, um, I have these like little um, author's plates that Mm. I can sign. So if you want it signed, just send me an email um, with your email at, not your email address, your your mailing address. And I can always pop one in the mail and whatnot. But um, thank you to everybody who has supported it. And, uh, you know, I just, not just the book, but my work, um, you know, look, when I first started this, I, I didn't think anybody other than those named Trina would read my work. And I am constantly amazed when I hear from fans and they say, oh, I'm a big fan of your work or, you know, I love your stuff. And, and I'm like, me? <laughs> so I appreciate it. And I appreciate you, Justin, and all you do. All right. Thank you, Patty. All right. Thank you once again to Patricia Trania for coming on the show. We will be back Next Monday, starting a new phase of the offseason. We're approaching the final month of the offseason for Bleeding Blue, and we're going to be doing a movie review of America's Games. So we're starting off with the 1986-1987 season, the Super Bowl XXI America's Game movie review. That's going to be next Monday. So we'll see you then. Keep on Bleeding Blue. Peace. Peace.